Well, three words on the screen that are probably terrifying a whole bunch of people. Um, who here is really great at that? Anybody? If, you would if you're great at this and have no struggle, you may at this point go out and enjoy some donuts and coffee. Uh, we'll let you know when we're done for our final worship song. Um, as we get into Lent for this season, we wanted to look at something a little different. We wanted to ask us, what is Lent about? Because it is kind of odd in Reformed circles. Did you actually know that technically in Reformed church, uh, Lent is not part of that tradition? There's nothing inherently wrong with it. We don't disagree with Lent. It's just not part of the normal tradition. And so it is a neat thing that, that happens in this region. Um, it seems like churches that are not Catholic in this area are particularly keen on celebrating Lent. But we have to ask ourselves, what is Lent all about? <clears throat> There's a couple different options. Maybe, try not to laugh, Maybe it's a remix of New Year's resolutions. Anybody here giving up sweets for Lent? Anybody? Be honest. I know you're like hesitant to raise your hand. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving up sweets for Lent. It's not a bad thing. We got some in the back that are doing that. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's a spiritually sanctioned diet. It's a time to live healthy and give up the things that cause us to be far from God and to fit into our clothing at the same time. Oh, how wonderful. We can solve two problems at once. But I don't think Lent is really about these things. I think Lent is about something entirely different. I think Lent is about this. It's in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when he tells us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. So I think at Lent, we give things up, not because they're bad things. Right? We can give up things that are good, but we give them up because in that time, in that 40, well, it's actually like 46 days technically, in those 46-some days, what we learn is that we actually don't need the things that we think that we need. And we come to the understanding that really all we need is Christ, that he is in fact sufficient for us. See, our minds, and we're going to talk about why in a little bit, our minds aren't naturally wired to live out as though Christ is all-sufficient for us. And so Lent is like this training exercise for our brain. It's a habit builder in some way. But there's a problem with Lent. It's 46 days. And what happens after? Most of us, we give something up for Lent. We pick something that we really value, and, and that's a good thing, and I'm in no way harping against that. Please don't hear me say that giving up trivial things for Lent is a bad thing. That's wonderful. You give up sweets. You give up maybe Facebook. Um, oh, how wonderful if we all just gave up Facebook for Lent. Could we just make a pact right here? I don't even, that just came right now. What if we, like, could we... Amen? We just all, for, for 40 days, we don't even touch it. It would change this church. I believe it. <laughs> in any church, not just this one. Right? But there's a problem. It's over. See, we learn that we don't need Jesus by giving up, the, or that we don't need the thing by giving up the thing so that we learn to be sufficient on Jesus. But afterwards, we go right back to it. And so we train ourselves for 40 days on this idea that Christ is sufficient for us, and then we keep living as if he isn't. And so this, this series, for the next couple weeks, about seven or eight weeks, we want to talk about a different kind of giving up for Lent. We don't want to give up just chocolate or Facebook or whatever it is that is your vice or thing that consumes you, that stops you from seeking the Lord. But we want to give up things that are permanent. And so I want to invite you today and over the next seven, eight weeks to start to consider how we might give up one thing each week 
Not for 40 days, for 46 days, but for good. And today, we're dealing with control. I think Bob left me with a hard one and went on vacation because everybody loves to be told to give up control. Control is something that we all love. We love to be in control of things. We really do. We want control so bad. As a matter of fact, the origin of the desire for control is what we see in the fall of mankind. Let's look at some passages. First this. In Genesis 2, um, the Lord has created man and planted man in the garden, and we get this, this mandate, this way that we are supposed to function in relationship to the things that God has created. Right? We are his, he made us, he is the one who gets to tell us how to live our lives, and he gives us these parameters. And when we read them, they're actually not that bad. It says this in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Wonderful. Only one rule. Could you imagine a world where there was one rule? Imagine if we said in this church, you can do whatever you want. Go nuts. Have fun. Live life. Just don't touch this thing right here. Like that one thing. Who here would have a struggle with that? <laughs> Honesty, I like it. He's like, I, the first thing I want to do is touch it. You ever see like a little kid when you're like, don't touch that thing. What's the first thing they want to do? They want to touch the thing. See, we want control. And the reason, see, if we think about it, the idea of just not eating from one tree is not that hard. Have you ever had that thought? Like, Adam and Eve, what were you thinking? It's just one tree. You have all these trees, delicious fruit here, delicious fruit here, delicious fruit behind you. The only thing you can't, just don't leave the one alone. Do you ever, like, in your own selfishness, do you ever have that? Like, I have thoughts like this all the time. I'm like, you guys are, ugh. Like, you screwed it up for all of us. We could be not struggling. We wouldn't have to pray for diseases. But you had to eat the Here's the thing. The challenge of not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil came the minute God told them, don't eat from the tree of good and evil. And the serpent's going to come in and it's going to jab, and we're going to read about that in a second. But understand this, it all comes down to control. They want to do the thing that they're not supposed to do. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice how he twists the word. That's not actually what God said. Right? The woman said, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Notice that she already screws up. God never said they couldn't touch it. She's already messing things up in her head. Right? Serpent's already gotten under her skin. Right. They can touch it all they want. They just can't eat the fruit from it. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. He just outright lies now. In fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, here's the temptation. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that their tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit, and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they were naked. And they knew they were naked. 
And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I love later on in the passage whenever they said, why were you hiding? And they said, I heard you coming and I was naked and ashamed. And God's literally like, who told you we were naked? Who said, what is, like, what is naked? How do you even know what that means? Right? He understands sin has entered. Control is what they crave more than anything. They don't want to be told that there's this thing that they can't do and have. They want to be able to decide, we will do this. We want to be like you. We are not satisfied with the bounty that you have set before us, the provisions that you've given us, the way that you have spoken life into being and the way that you have created the world to be. The order of the world, God, that you set up isn't working for Adam and I. We want it to be our own way. We want to know the things that you know and we want to be like you. And the serpent said, if we eat the fruit, we can be. So we ate. That's not the verbatim of scripture, but that's what's going on in their heads. It's control. What are the things that cause us to want to be in control? There's a couple. The first is pride. We think we know better. We are the ones who understand. I know God says this, but have you seen how the world works today? It's different. It's not like back then. As if the one who can make a mountain by going didn't know how the world was going to be today. Right? It's pride. It's, it's the fact that we think we know better than God. And man, if you press us on that, we will deny it to the grave. But that is what we think anytime we exert control over the things that God calls us to do and think and say. The second is fear. One of the number one reasons that we can control anything in our lives is the result of fear. Fear kills the Christian life. Absolutely decimates it. We operate so much out of fear, we don't even know when we do it. We make decisions in our families based on fear. We make decisions about our finances based on fear, both as a church, big C church, global church, and as individuals and families. We make decisions about how we spend our time. We make decisions about how we treat people based on fear. Right? We put up walls because... We're afraid of how people will treat us. And then the last is need. We control things out of need. And this one is actually not in and of itself a bad thing. Uh, a little bit of psychology here. So there's this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And the psych people in this room are well familiar with this. And it is the idea that there is a basic level. These are all the needs that we perceive as people. And at the very bottom, it starts with like your most basic things like livelihood, air, food, water, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction. Safety needs are next. Things like security, employment, resources, health. Love and belonging come after that. Things like friendship, intimacy, family. We want to be connected to people. Esteem, we want to be respected. We want to be recognized. We want to be free. And then finally, self-actualization. If all those other needs get met, right, it's this desire to become the most that we can be. And so we, we actually operate out of the need. A lot of the things that we do, right, kind of in the back of our heads, come as a result of needing to fulfill these needs. We will make decisions based on the need that we have. And here's the key. We will surrender control in our lives, willingly, to the extent to which that we feel safe that our needs in a situation will be met. If we feel safe that a need is met, we will surrender control. That's why many of us are willing to get on a roller coaster. 
That's why you're willing to drive with your spouse, but terrified to drive with your teenager. Right? Because you've done the assessment. One of those poses a significantly higher risk to your physiological or safety needs, and so you choose consciously, maybe you choose not to do it. Right? Some of us as drivers, there are some people in my life who I will never get in the car with. Right? We choose all the time to surrender control in subconscious ways. We choose who we will marry. That's a surrendering of control because we perceive and we trust that needs will be met. Right? We do this all the time. Our extent and our ability to surrender control is a direct result of how much we trust that our needs in this hierarchy are going to be met. I'll get to that in a second. And I think the trust issue is what's key there. And I think that's why Jesus tells us this. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? Here's the key. Control as a result of need is not bad. But we mess this up because of the sin in our lives. I think this died. There we go. Our sinful nature shifts our trust away from God and towards ourselves. See, when sin enters the world and our lives and our hearts, when we become stained by the world, instead of trusting God, we trust the world more. And what happens is we stop trusting that God has every one of our needs fully accounted for. Everything you and I could need is covered by God. That's what he does when he puts them in the garden. He puts the food there, and he puts the beauty there, and they, they have this ability to enjoy the creation. That's the whole point, right? Westminster, what's the point of, of, of all of life, of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the chief end. But we don't trust it. I don't think that God really can take care of me, so i got to take up my own mantle. i got to cover myself. i got to put up walls. i got to make my own decisions. i got to control this and that. It all comes down to how we trust. We don't believe God. They exchange the truth of him for a lie. And so what we do instead is we worship and serve that what has been created instead of the creator. Everything gets twisted around because of sin. Now, there's a good example that comes on the other end of this. Because the beauty is that when Adam and Eve sin, the story is not over, right? Flip to the New Testament, get to Matthew, enter Jesus. Jesus gets tempted. I want you to observe the difference in how Jesus interacts with Satan versus how Eve interacted with Satan, right? And how he comes to do, how he comes to be different. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness and attempted to be, de uh, to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And then Jesus answered, It is written which implies that he understands the Old Testament and knows where it's written, right? Man must not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where does our life source come from? Is it bread? Nope, not ultimately. Ultimately, it's all of the things that God sets up for him. So get away from me, Satan. Man doesn't live by bread. Man lives by the word of God. Next one. The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. I love that, this, that Satan quotes scripture here <laughs> to Jesus. <laughs> like, Jesus is God, God, Jesus, God, Jesus, God, Jesus, Jesus wrote, wrote what he's quoting to him. It's this whole weird thing. But that is something that we should be aware of. Satan understands scripture and how it works, probably better than we do. So he quotes it to him, and he says, in in reply, Jesus told him, it is also written, don't test the Lord your God. Again, Jesus knows his Old Testament. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of this world and their splendor, and he said, I will give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and the angel came and began to serve him. First off, I love that Satan offers the whole kingdom to Jesus as if he doesn't already own it. That's like me taking out like your wallet, (laughs) being like, bow down to me and I'll give you my wallet. (laughs) That's not your wallet. Like, it's just a silly thing. But he does. Every single time Satan throws something at him, Jesus comes back with the truth of God's word. Where Eve failed, and Adam failed along with her. We don't want to blame just the ladies. Where the two of them fail together, Jesus succeeds. When he's tempted, when he's hungry, when he's at his wit's end, when he's tired, when he's faced with all of these decisions which would bring him immediate comfort, which afford him the opportunity to exert control that benefits him, Jesus says, no, no, wait a second. That's not how the economy of God's supposed to work. I know I'm hungry, but but I I survive on on the word of God. And he'll provide me food. And that's exactly what happens. And the devil left and the angels came and began to serve him. God does actually, at the end of this temptation, provide, just like he says he would. And so the father provides for the son because the son was obedient. All of his needs are 100% met. And so here's the challenge. How do we surrender control? The only way is by coming to trust that the Lord God that created us has us in the palm of his hand. That as he worries about the birds in the air and the plants on the ground, that he's even more concerned with you and with me. That he cares for us. And that kind of trust is not easy. It takes an insurmountable amount of grace. An insurmountable amount of grace. In order to control, to give up control, we need Jesus. Desperately need Jesus. Jesus. And we need the grace that he gives us. I don't know why this was in here again. There's a quote by um, Tali and Shavigian, 
And if you know anything about Tully and Trevigian, he's, a, he's got some scandal behind him in the pastorate. He's got some scandal that has removed him from the pastorate, but this is an older quote. So just because, don't, don't hear me read a quote of his and give approval to actions or anything like that if you know anything about Tullian, but he, he still speaks truth and wisdom. And he says this, he says, grace is thickly counterintuitive. It feels risky and unfair. It's dangerous and disorderly. It wrestles control out of our hands. It is wild and unsettling, and it turns everything that makes sense to us upside down and inside out. See, we need to ask each and every day for the grace of Christ to remind us that everything about the world we live in is is counterintuitive to the way that God set up the kingdom to work so that we can get up in the morning and walk out the door and have our faith and trust in him. And when we trust that he will do what he says he will do, we will begin to surrender the control of our lives. And so my challenge to you is this. Start small this week. What are some things in your life that you are holding tight control over? Because you can Every one of us has those things. There's things in our lives that we can't control, and so to compensate, we control things that we can, and sometimes that's to a detrimental extent. What are those little things? What's one thing this week that you can say, you know what, i got to surrender this, and if God doesn't show up, things aren't going to go really well, but I'm going to trust that he will. Because that's how it works. He'll give us the grace that we need to surrender that one thing and that will build our trust in him. And then we'll surrender more and more and more and more and eventually we live a life that is sold out to him. Eventually we get so saturated with the gospel and with scripture that we are able to say, just as Jesus did, yeah, I don't live by bread alone. I live by the words of my king. Our prayers that we would each and every one of us this week be empowered by the Spirit to give up the little things that we seek to control in our lives. And that next week when we come back, we would have countless testimonies of the ways that God has been at work. When we give it up and we put it in his hands, watch what he does. He's so much better at life than we are. He's so much better at relationships and and issues of money and issues of our calendar and family living and our marriages. He's so much better at running the show on those things than we could ever be. And until we understand that, we will never fully be able to live and press into the Christian life. My hope is that we do that this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us that allows us to live in a way that gives up control. Father, this is hard. Every one of us wants to hold on to things tightly. Every one of us wants to control things in our lives. Every one of us has a hard time giving up those things. So God, we lay them at your feet today. We ask that you would give us a supernatural measure of your grace, that we would be able to surrender entirely and completely to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being the author and orchestrator of our lives. We pray that we would allow you to do that this week. And all his people said, amen. Please stand and join us as we close.